sometimes when we're reactive, it gives this message that you shouldn't have these feelings. You're wrong or bad for having these feelings. And the truth is everybody has every range of feelings. And when we can sit and practice being non-reactive with them, we give our kids the implicit message that it's okay, that this is normal, this is human, and I'm still here for you. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. For this episode, I sat down with mindfulness mentor Hunter Clark Fields, host of the Mindful Mama podcast and author of the new book, Raising Good Humans, for a conversation about the benefits of mindfulness for parents. I love Hunter's empathetic and research-oriented perspective on the intersection of mindfulness and parenting, and I wanted to share her insight with listeners as I truly believe these practices are equally important, if not more so, for parents raising differently wired kids. In our conversation, we talk about the difference between mindfulness and meditation, using mindfulness practices to retrain our brains to handle difficult emotions, this was what I got so much out of, and the importance of not just self-care, but self-compassion for parents. There are a lot of good tools and insights in here. I hope you enjoy it. And now here is my conversation with Hunter. Hello, Hunter. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. So glad to be here. I'm happy to have you on the show. Your work is so in alignment with teleparenting, what we do, and your new book is such a great fit for this audience. And I know you actually reach a much larger audience, not specifically parents of differently wired kids, but your work is so relevant to my community. So as a way to get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, who you are in the world, both in your professional life and as a parent? Sure. Um, As a parent, my daughter is, as we record this, on the cusp of 13, my oldest daughter and uh, and I have, a, I have a younger daughter who's on the cusp of 10. And when my oldest daughter was younger, when she was like two, I was really, really struggling. I, I, I come out of I come at all the learning that, that is in raising good humans and in the work very honestly in that I was I was pretty bad at all of these things. I, I felt like I felt like I was failing at, at parenting. When my daughter was two, I was really struggling. I was yelling at her and it was just so much harder than I thought it would be. And she's a very precocious kid and she's really intense. She's like, you know, a highly sensitive person. And she was just letting me know very clearly that the way I was doing things was not working. And so I had to, I, for me, I, um, I had to really dive into like a whole bunch of learning and I had been studying and reading about mindfulness since I was a teenager for myself because I happen to be a highly sensitive person, go figure. Um, and then I had been practicing for a few years before she was born. But um, I knew that that was the really the sort of the key to like lowering my reactivity lay in that realm. So I had to really kind of dive back into that, but also then diving into the parenting world and and learning about what are the best practices and, and realizing that these two worlds needed to talk to each other. And so that is where my work comes in. And that the I bring these two worlds together where, um, because sort of in the in the parenting world, there, there would be all this wonderful, like great advice of how to respond. But there's a whole 
bunch of things that you just can't do when you're losing it <laughs> because you just can't access that part of your brain, literally. And then in that mindfulness world, there is this kind of idea that, well, once you calm down, you know, just sort of everything will be okay. But but no, I discovered that that wasn't quite true. I could calm down and then say something that might have come out of my parents' mouth. And, and then it was like, kaboom, a whole explosion would happen again. So really, it's about bringing these, these sort of two worlds together, like how to be less reactive and more calm and self-aware and self-compassionate. And then also then how to how to communicate and respond to our kids in a way that's just, you know, more compassionate, but also just more effective as well. I'm curious, to know about when you became a parent, because I think, you know, listening to you, I can certainly relate to that feeling of like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm not being the parent I thought I was going to be. This is a lot harder. I'm not showing up uh, in a good way. And you, you write very honestly about that in your book. Did you I'm curious if going into parenting, especially knowing that you were studying mindfulness from a younger age, did you feel like you've got it covered? Like, did you go in thinking <laughs> I'm going to ace this? Or what was that realization like? Totally. I totally thought it was going to be amazing. Because I, um, so I started reading and studying about mindfulness when I was a teenager. And then about a decade later, I finally started practicing. And I was 27. I, when I began my first regular practice, and it was life changing for me. I had, you know, I had been falling into these pits of despair, at a pretty regularly pace in my life, like every couple of weeks, I would just, when I was a, a teacher, I had panic attacks in the parking lot. And so the meditation practice for me was a huge life changer. It, it just, it eliminated these pits that I would fall into every week or two. It was amazing. For me, it was a big life changer as far as bringing me more equanimity, et cetera. And then, so then I was, when I was 29, then two years later, I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I, I can definitely remember myself sitting with my big pregnant belly in my meditation group and just thinking, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm I got this. This is going to be awesome. She's going to be so calm. Look at we're just sitting and meditating together as, a, you know, and and uh, and yeah. And then I just got hit with the, <laughs> the hard, cold truth of parenting, which is that it's really like it's incredibly intense. It's psychologically intense. It's physically intense. There's so much, it's so demanding of us in so many different ways. Um, we may or may not have support in those realms, in the physical, psychological, all the, those things. And so it, it really was uh, a big shock to the system, how difficult it, it was. I mean, even from the very beginning, my, I had my daughter at, um, a birth center, you know, a, sort of a natural childbirth. So I had this crunchy community around me and um, my birth center mama friends, some of them just seemed so blissed out. <laughs> and my daughter was like kind of intense. And I was like, just wondering, you know, what's, what's going on? Why, why am I not having that experience? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. That sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. And it's, I think it is such a a shock to the system, as you said, that it is that we 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 all go through, and uh, I don't think anyone gets to escape that. Maybe there's like one percent of of parents who it's just easy, but I always think it's when their kids get older that's when their fun's going to begin. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah. So I 
wonder if you could maybe give us a definition of mindfulness and also tell us what meditation for you looks like, because, you know, I've done a few episodes on mindfulness and I think there's a lot of myth around what it is, what it actually looks like. And I think meditation as well, people have this idea in their head of that it has to look like, you know, sitting in, in quiet for an hour and turning off all thoughts, you know, what is a realistic view of mindfulness meditation or, or both together or separately? That Those are great questions, because they aren't the same thing. And so m- mindfulness can be defined as, um, you know, the intentional, the intention to pay attention to what's happening in the present moment with an attitude of kindness and curiosity. Uh, so there's a couple parts there. There's creating, the, setting that intention. I will, I will be here in the present moment with what I'm doing. Um, there's your attention. You know, our our minds wander enormously. Our attention can be really broad or it can be really narrow. So it's about sort of shaping and practicing flexing that muscle of attention. Um, and then in the in the present moment, and so we use um usually some kind of anchor because our attention is very much like a little puppy and likes to wander away. And so we have to make it heal many times. And so we can use an anchor of, for instance, the breath is the most common. And then also with that attitude of kindness and curiosity is so important. Um, Curiosity is the opposite of judgment. It's about what is happening right now? What are these sensations that I'm feeling? What are the emotions that are arising? And and can I hold all of this with kindness? So it's about cultivating a real loving awareness of what is happening. And this is d- very different from the way we are normally in our lives and that our minds are, you know, we are planning the what's happening for dinner and we are you know, engaged in our work, or somebody's talking to us, and we're thinking about how we'll respond. And, you know, we're, we're very distracted in our lives, very often. And sometimes we don't even see that until we start to sit in meditation. And, and meditation is just a, there are many different kinds of meditation. But for the purposes here, it is one of the best ways to practice mindfulness. And mindfulness is a type of meditation where you're practicing to be present in the moment with kindness and curiosity. And so you can do that by bringing your attention back to the breath again and again and again. And and the goal is not to clear your mind. <laughs> that's that's going to happen when you're, uh, maybe if you're enlightened, probably when you're dead. So <laughs> the, really, the brain is, um, you know, we. I think of it like this. The mind thinks just the same way the ears hear, right? We're not going to stop our ears from hearing things. And we're not going to stop our, our brain from, from thinking. But we can have more control over where our attention is going and what is doing. Um, and, and it's just, it's basically about building a muscle of attention. And, and what's exciting about it for parents is that it helps us to be less reactive. It literally makes changes in the brain as we, as we practice bringing our attention back to the breath 6,000 times <laughs> during meditation. Um, as we do this this practice, as frustrating as it is and impossible as it feels in the very beginning, it's actually changing the brain to make your stress response areas of your brain, your fight, flight, and freeze response areas of the brain to actually sh- make shrink them and actually grow 
um, more connectivity and more density in the prefrontal cortex areas of the brain, which is where your your empathy, your higher order learning, your verbal ability, your all these wonderful things are, right? So which we really want to access as parents. So it is really, really powerful. So basically, m- mindfulness meditation is a gold standard for practicing mindfulness, but there are other ways to practice as well. I think I've, I've said a lot of things about that. I want to just pause here and offer space for your questions, your thoughts. <laughs> well, that was a very thorough answer. So, and it did bring up a question for me because I think something just clicked in me that that is new because what we ultimately want, right, is to be able, as you said, to not be reactive and, you know, for, for, parents and especially parents who are raising differently wired kids who often feel like there are just opportunities to practice those moments, you know, multiple, multiple times a day. You know, what I always hear from people, guests that I talk to and experts that I connect with is it's all about in that moment being able to, to pause, right? And Mm -hmm. so what you're saying is, tell me if I'm wrong, the more we can practice this mindfulness that will actually strengthen our ability to, in those difficult moments, be able to more call on that ability to take that pause. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. So it it gives us this bit of space between stimulus and response, because in a meditation, we're practicing to become curious about what these spaces are, right? We're practicing to look at the spaces in between the thinking to just practice that awareness and then also what happens inevitably if when one sits down for meditation is that you notice uh, it's not terribly blissful. If you've ever tried, <laughs> dear listener, you probably know this. It really feels like you you get lost in thought or even emotions arise. Discomfort can arise. All these things can arise and we practice to sort of sit and stay non-reactive through that with this attitude of kindness and curiosity. So something may arise for me in meditation, like a thought may trigger an anxiety. And so then I sit with that experience and I look at what does that feel like in my body? And I can feel my chest constrict a little, I can feel my shoulders tighten and I breathe and I practice just being with that, just allowing that to be there and giving it that space and also practicing to allow those difficult feelings to be there is practicing non-reactivity, basically. And so then when we're in a difficult moment with our kids and it it feels difficult, you know, our normal response to, to things that are uncomfortable is to change the situation, fix it, make it different, you know, and what our kids often need from us, however they're wired, right? Like would they often need for us to be able to, they want to be, to be able to ground with us, right? To be able to use our stability to give it some to them, to offer them that stability. And when we can sit with a feeling that's uncomfortable, then we provide the space to sit with them and their uncomfortable feelings. And that is like a magic for, for kids, for really for anybody to be able to hold space for something that's hard for somebody else is really, truly grounding. And it makes it so that difficult moments and difficult feelings are accepted. It's not saying that you're wrong. You know, sometimes when we're reactive, it gives this message that you shouldn't have these feelings. You're wrong or bad for having these feelings. And the truth is everybody has every range of feelings. And when we can sit and practice being non-reactive with them, we give our kids the implicit message that it's okay 
that this is normal, this is human, and I'm still here for you, which is incredibly valuable. It's really unconditional love, like I'm here for you no matter what is happening, which is really beautiful. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. As you were explaining that, uh, reminded me of Susan Stiffelman talks about being the captain of the ship, like having that leadership energy. And that's just such a good reminder you know, of that role that we can play and how desperately our kids, especially when they're going through a difficult moment, they do need us to be that grounded person, the anchor for them. Yeah. And you taught you have a chapter called taking care of difficult feelings. And, um, you know, you just touched upon this a little bit, you you say that there are two kind of default reactions that most of us fall into with our emotions or our hard feelings, we either block them or we become flooded. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Sure. And I think this is just pretty natural, right? Difficult feelings. They don't feel good. That's why we call them difficult feelings. And so in culturally, it's hard to say what's kind of hardwired or culturally, but we tend to just want to not feel those feelings, right? We just tend to, we want to block them. And so we can block them by just kind of, men, you know, ignoring the feelings, mentally pushing them away. We also block them by numbing them through different substances, you know, alcohol, shopping, um, (laughs) Facebook, whatever you're doing right to distract yourself from the difficult feelings is kind of a form of blocking. And so we're trying to push it away. But the problem with that is that I think of, I like to think of our feelings are, are like little toddlers, like a three-year-old, like our feelings are like three-year-olds and they are like, you will feel me or I will not go away. You must pay attention to me. <laughs> and I think that's really true <laughs> because if, when, when we block the feelings, it's kind of like trying to push a beach ball under the water. It, it pops up in some random place, even higher than it did before. It hasn't been dealt with. And so, so then we can often then go to the opposite side of the spectrum and become flooded. We become overwhelmed. We're in tears or we're yelling or we're angry, et cetera. So those are kind of the two ways that we deal with things often in our, in our world. But the beauty of the middle path is that actually when we can just take a moment to mindfully feel the feelings, right? So if we can say, hello, frustration, Oh, hello, frustration. I see you there, old friend. Okay, I see my frustration. I'm going to help myself take care of this, right? I'm going to help myself take care of this. Or or hello, hello, sadness, right? I see you there. And yeah, it's here because this thing happened and this is what it feels like. And as we can start to sit with and feel the sensations that, you know, that emotions um, bring up in the body, we realize that we have the strength and the capacity to be able to feel these things. And we actually have a lot more capacity than we think we do, I think, often. And as we can sit with some things, then it's they the feelings become like, you know, a dark cloud that comes and then it rains for a little while and then it goes away. And without all that resistance and trying to push it away and things like that, it just kind of can go away more quickly. In fact, as if we can really give ourselves time and attention to really, really pay attention to those feelings and maybe even let ourselves cry and all that, things can move through our bodies as quickly as in 60 seconds. It's really pretty amazing. Uh, but when we try to block, it, it does end up, you know, coming back in some some awkward time. You know, they they say our, our issues are in our tissues. I think it sort of goes into our tissues, right? Uh, so it, it really becomes the skill that we need to learn so that then we can you know, our kids can learn from us. It becomes a two for one deal once we sort of train ourselves how to take care of our difficult feelings. I love that beach ball metaphor. I think that's such a good visual of what happens when we try to push things down that they just resurface bigger. And what you said about 60 seconds, that emotion cycling through, I'm remembering learning from Martha Beck, she talks about grief, like when you're in having those crying jags that you just feel will consume you and will never end if you really allow yourself to experience that it it I don't remember exactly how many minutes but it's a it's a very small number of minutes that you will get a break from that and so allowing yourself to really experiencing them yeah I think you're absolutely right it 
it helps you process it in a more healthy way more quickly. And then also modeling for our kids that this is survivable, we we can all feel these big feelings, and it's okay. Exactly. Yeah. And it is scary. It's brave work to do that. And sometimes it is more skillful to have a glass of wine and watch six episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Like maybe that's more skillful sometimes, <laughs> right? Like there may be times where it's skillful to numb a little bit, right? But there are, as we be, begin to build in and trust our capacity to be able to hold things with loving awareness, our capacity grows and it, it really becomes this gift for your family, for your friends, for anyone you touch to be able to have this capacity to be with those those things becomes this this real anchor for for anyone you're in a close relationship with. So for parents whose kids are in that time in their life where they are having those really big tantrums and you know, I, I hear from parents all the time and you probably do too, who are, they're really in crisis mode. You know, they're dealing with really challenging behaviors. You know, I, when, when my son was younger, there were just months at a time where we just felt like we were walking on eggshells and, you know, it was just living with an explosive person really was difficult as a parent because you just felt the feels were too big and you couldn't even get a moment's peace. So can you talk about your advice or, or thoughts for parents who are really kind of in the thick of it and how they can kind of apply what you're talking about to get a little peace or just even have the time to catch a breath, which often they don't even feel like they can do. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that one of the most important things to remember <clears throat> when we're in the thick of it is that, that your needs are just as important as your child's needs and that you taking care of your needs, whether that's need for alone time, space, time with friends, sleep, all those things that we truly need as humans, those needs are really some of the only things that are going to help you parent well and skillfully. And many, especially moms, feel guilty for having time away from our children um, for arranging for for care through, you know, by hook or by crook. And we shouldn't because it is not this, the self, the idea that self-care is selfish is really frustrating to me because it's actually a responsibility. It's, self-care is not selfish. It is your responsibility. And it's our responsibility, you know, as adults to take a moment to step back and say, this is incredibly hard right now. This is so challenging and I need help. I need space and time to myself. I need help. I need to call, find means of support. And, and it's very frustrating for me to give this advice because I know how unsupportive our society in general um, and our resources as far as services in the United States particularly are on this. But um, I really want to also say that you don't have to do it all alone and, and trying to do it all alone is a recipe for crazy times and unskillful actions and choices on your part if you're completely drained and depleted. So I think it's really, really, really very important for us to support each other in making space and time for ourselves beyond parenting as well. So that is my number one most important I think, piece of the answer to that question. And and then when our kids are in those incredibly difficult times and we're suffering through that, one of the things that we want to remember 
is that it is normal and it is safe for our kids to have big, difficult feelings. One of the big things that w- often happen to us and happens in society is that when somebody has difficult feelings, we're, we try to fix it or change it in some way. And that may be your default mode or your partner's default mode. But it actually is much better to allow our kids to have these feelings. One of the best parenting moments I ever saw uh, on social media was it was some celebrity and uh, he had a like a toddler daughter and he and his family members were just standing around keeping her safe in a public place while she was on the ground (laughs) losing it completely and it was so skillful because there's nothing you can do in that moment when that when that child is completely losing it except for be there for them and keep them safe and show them through your as best you can, if you're able to, if you're not getting triggered yourself, that it, this is okay, that it's it's okay, it's safe, and I'm going to keep you safe, and and you're not wrong or bad for feeling those things. So those are a couple important pieces of that conversation for when it's that really difficult time. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. That's really helpful, and and I... I love the priority on taking care of yourself. And I, I know from personal experience and from so many parents that I hear from that many of them just feel like they can't, like that's not an option right now. And and so that's part of, I think this ongoing conversation is, is helping those parents 
recognize that it isn't an optional thing and nothing really is going to get better until we can kind of take that time for ourselves, whatever that is. And, you know, I'm not talking about spa days. I'm talking about like moments of, of peace or groundedness and, or, and getting that support. And I also like, you talk a lot about self-compassion. I think you have a whole chapter about it in mm-hmm. the book. And I think that's also such a critical piece of this. So many of us raising differently wired kids, you know, we go through this either a period of regret where we realize maybe later than than we think we should have that our child's atypical and maybe we didn't maybe we feel guilty about things that we did or ways we responded because we thought it was bad behavior as opposed to just how this child is wired and then there's that sense of you know, this is my fault, or I'm a failure as a parent. Can you talk a little bit more about self-compassion piece and why it's so important in showing up for our kids? Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. I mean, it's so, so foundational. And it and it's research-backed, and it really makes a lot of sense. So when I had lost at my child, and I was crying on the floor, and when I told myself I was a terrible parent, that message to myself was not helpful. <laughs> Go figure. It left me feeling debilitated and helpless. And and it kept me in a downward spiral. And the research shows that that's true because it makes a lot of sense. If you tell yourself, if you berate yourself, if you're harsh to yourself, if that inner voice is really mean and hard to yourself, and that's the voice you come to back to when you are inevitably human and make a mistake because we all will, um, then you're not going to want to step out of your comfort zone and take steps to grow and change that may be different and may be difficult, right? But if you can practice to offer yourself compassion when you have those inevitable moments when you are human and you mess up, because we all do. Um, So when I started to respond to myself like, okay, this was terrible, this was hard, what can I learn from this? You know, this was, this was tough. This is a tough moment, but I can begin anew and I can learn from this. And and when I started to take these challenges and see them as my teachers and say, what what can I learn from this? How can I, how can I grow from this? That's when I started to really start to, to make change. And, and actually research shows this. So Kristen Neff from University of Austin has all this wonderful research on self-compassion showing that, self-compassionate people actually are much more able to make changes and to take steps to grow and change old harmful habits because that voice that they come back to is a voice of, oh, this was hard or, or, or what you might say to a good friend, right? And then with that softer landing, you're able to then try again, right? You're much more able to try again. So, it really becomes a very foundational piece. And and if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my goodness, my inner voice, she is mean, mean, mean. <laughs> Don't worry, you're normal and you can change it. This is uh, something that can change with practice. So what you practice grows stronger and it is totally okay if it feels really corny and weird and strange at first. <laughs> uh, that's totally fine. But if you can start to practice to recognize when you are inevitably human as we all will be and you inevitably make a mistake and if you can then imagine, okay, 
Well, first, the first piece is that mindfulness. What are these thoughts that I'm having? What am I telling myself? And start to have, bring this curiosity to what is the, the script that happens when I make a mistake and start to interrupt that and question that. And then offer yourself, you know, what if my best friend was feeling this way, what would I say to her? How would I talk to her? And then offer those words to yourself as if you're, there's two parts of yourself in that moment. And then it's also really, really helpful to remember that you are not alone. We have what, seven billion people on the planet at any given time, there's guaranteed to be at least a million people feeling exactly how you're feeling. So if you tell yourself, oh, parents like Debbie never yell at their kids or parents like Hunter never yell at their kids and it's just me and I'm a terrible person, like that is not the message that's going to help you move forward more skillfully. But if you can remember, actually, yeah, Hunter still yells at her kids sometimes. And Debbie, she makes some mistakes. Everybody has had problems. You know, there are plenty of people out there right now who are suffering in this moment the way I'm suffering because this is really hard. Then that is also something that can help us come back, get back on our feet. But it really is about offering ourselves that soft landing it will help us grow and change. And also you really want to, if, if, if doing it for yourself isn't motivating enough, you can practice this and remember to practice this by doing it for your kids because you want you need to know that who you are as a person is much more important than anything else as parents. And that inner voice over the at least 18 years of living with your kid it's going to come out at some point and it's definitely, it's certainly going to come out at some, um, when I was young, my mom struggled and I remember, I remember seeing her in the mirrors just saying to herself, oh, I'm so ugly. Uh, and it was heartbreaking, but I just watched this and, you know, but lo and behold, what did I do when I was young twenties and late teens? I looked at myself in the mirror and I told myself I was so ugly because I absorbed that inner voice from my mom. And so that your inner voice is going to come out sometime. And so maybe you can make that motivation to start to practice to change that for your kids, because, you know, you're like an orange, right? You're not going to squeeze an orange and get some beautiful pomegranate juice out of it. Like when you squeeze that orange, you're going to get orange juice because what is inside is what will come out eventually. So we can start to shift and change that bit by bit. Hmm. That's great. Thank you for that. And I love that remembering the legacy that we're leaving for our kids and how what their inner voice is going to sound like. And that is really all the motivation we need, you know? Yeah. Can you before we say goodbye, I'd love it to just, you know, we've been talking around your book. So you wrote this new book, it's called Raising Good Humans, A Mindful Guide to Breaking the Cycle of Reactive Parenting and Raising Kind, Confident Kids. So can you just tell us what your hope for the book is and what parents can expect when they read it. I know it's funny when you write a book for parents because parents are like, I don't have time to read a book. <laughs> well, um, so what this brings together, it brings together mindfulness and self-compassion with skillful communication in the second half. And so this book brings together the inner workings of how to start to shift and change yourself and, and grow yourself so that you can become a parent, as well as how to respond and talk to your kids so that you can get more cooperation over the long run. And what I'm 
hope to what is in the book are a lot of practices and a lot of practical ways for you to make changes and tools to help kids with their strong emotions, how to sort of say the right things. And I like to structure it as a guide. Here's what to practice. Here's how to do this. Um, I remember as I was in my intensive modes of studying and learning and going to trainings, I remember I was very inspired by um, certain speakers, but then I would say, how, how do you do this? How, what are the steps? And so Raising Good Humans is about the how. It's very much a how-to book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of very practical tips and strategies in there, which again, especially when talking about mindfulness and these topics, I think it can be hard to get really in that practical. It can feel very... Um, idea based. And so I appreciate everything that you share in there. Um, Listeners, I'll have a link to that in the show notes page. So you can check it out. And then Hunter, where else can listeners connect with you? Sure, I host the Mindful Mama podcast, which is anywhere podcasts are found. And uh, you can find me at mindfulmamamentor.com. Awesome. Well, Hunter, congratulations on the book. And it's Lovely. And also the cover is beautiful. I just have to say, Um, (laughs) I really love it. And thank you so much for just sharing your work with the world and with my audience. We're very lucky to have had you stop by today. Thank you so much, Debbie. I I really appreciate it. And thank you for doing what you're doing with Tilt and, and all of this. It's so wonderful. So, so glad we got to connect. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. 
And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking